economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. And we also have Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, shame we don't have Justin today, but we're going to talk about economic freedom. And Jim Gortney, who we named the Gortney Institute after, was creator of an index, a single number that essentially shows how easy it is to do business in various countries around the world. And this is a work that he started with Milton Friedman way back in the, I think it was the early 90s, maybe even late 80s was the when they got together. And Milton Friedman had done work around the world and trying to encourage freedom. You might remember his Free to Choose series. Those of you who are a little bit older that aired in like 1979, 1980, still timeless material today. And one of the things that started to gain traction is how he helped places like Hong Kong develop a rule of law with limited government and maximum individual freedom and how Hong Kong went from being a very poor country of, uh, I can't remember exactly, but let's say around $6,000 of income per person, adjusting for purchasing power parity and kind of making things fair versus the United States that had, I think at that time, maybe let's just say $40,000. And so over time, these Asian tigers, they're called, quickly grew and approached and in some cases passed the United States in terms of per capita income. And so it's not all about income, of course, but it's a sure a heck of a lot about poverty. And so the poverty results and things that we kind of hold near and dear here at the Gordon Institute, access to drinking water, life expectancy, lower infant mortality rates, a lot of these social outcomes that we all desire turn out to be pretty heavily correlated with the amount of economic freedom within a country. And so I wanted to read off for starters, you know, what is economic freedom? It's, it's really narrowing it down to individuals within a country. So individuals have economic freedom when the property they acquire without the use of force, fraud, or theft is protected from physical occasions by others, and they are free to use, exchange, or give their property as long as their actions do not violate the identical rights of others. And so when countries are set up that way, whether it's through their social institutions, culture, and of course, government, the law of the land, what does it look like in various countries? Do individuals have that same thing of being able to acquire property, have their property protected, not have it stolen? What's the court system like and police system? So in order to achieve a high economic freedom rating in a country, it must keep government spending and taxes low. Part of the reason here is that if government spending and taxes are lower, that's more money that's in your hands rather than the government's hands, right? So again, we're thinking about individual economic freedom. Are you able to spend your money the way you think it should be spent? Or is somebody in Washington, D.C. getting the money and figuring out how it should be spent? So a country that has more individual economic freedom has lower government spending and taxes. Do you have access to sound money? So is the money functioning properly? We're pretty blessed in the United States for the most part over the years. Our central bank's been pretty strong that we can rely on the dollar. In fact, other countries around the world 
uh, rely on the dollar as well. Protect property rights. So is there a police system that's sound? If you call the police, do they show up to your door in a reasonable amount of time? One of the survey questions that comes out or do they show up next week or never show up at all? And enforcing contracts even-handedly. What does our court system look like? Do the, do the judges take bribes and, and the rich end up getting out of a, a lawsuit, for instance? Uh, the stuff that we, again, for the most part, take for granted uh, in the United States doesn't happen everywhere around the world like that. It must also refrain from imposing trade barriers. That might be a mark against uh, the recent stuff that Trump has done that we can talk about later and regulations uh, that undermine voluntary exchange. So again, individual economic freedom within the United States means I'm free to trade with a guy in China, right? If he wants to sell me something, I have the freedom to do that. If the government has high tariffs or taxes on imports, then I'm not as free as a country that doesn't have those tariffs. So Peter, what do you think about that little summary there? And that, those are words from Jim Courtney, by the way, reading out of different parts from the Economic Freedom Report. Yeah, I think this is a good summary, Russ, and it's good for a couple of reasons. First off, I think Jim Gortney's definition of economic freedom is great, and we'll go back to it in a second. And I think you also did a good job of pointing out why economic freedom is important, because you mentioned the, the Asian tigers and how there was so much po poverty reduction when they started to achieve high levels of economic freedom. And so there's this correlation, again, like Russ said, income isn't all that matters, but it's pretty great when you move away from poverty. And so we see a clear connection between economic freedom and human flourishing, moving away from poverty. And so one of the questions might be why, because nowadays actually, you know, you kind of hear the opposite, that in order to have prosperity, we're going to have to have like, you know, heavy taxes or redistribution mm -hmm. policies or things like that. Yeah. And so understanding why economic freedom is important helps us understand why the, those, those policy ideas might be wrongheaded. Yeah. I think there's a couple of reasons too why. Uh, the first is, you know, in Jim Gortney's definition of economic freedom, he talks about the right to use your property as you see fit. And so, you know, anytime that you have a piece of property that can grow in value over time, if you let it like, uh, you know, a plant that can maybe become more ripe or, or bloom more flowers or, or fruit on the plants, any sort of investment that grows in value, you're going to be more likely to harvest that too soon or sooner than you would otherwise, if you think someone's going to come and steal it from you. And so if it's really likely that, you know, someone's going to come in your backyard and pick the plants off your tomato bush, you're going to probably pull them off the tomato bush before they're actually ready to go. So that way they don't get stolen from you. And so that's true of investing too. If you think that your investments are going to be stolen or taxed or that the people who hold, you know, your money in the investment aren't going to let you cash it out, any of those things would cause you to be less likely to invest and more likely to just consume. And that means you're not going to grow. And just less careful maybe in general that, well, I'm probably not going to be able to keep it anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so you, you have a lower cost of being just, you know, not cautious. Yeah. We see a lot of even poverty in the United States, but also poverty around the world, uh, that short time horizon in terms of planning. My wife has some friends down in Mexico and just a, a weird example of this is that the family will all of a sudden say, hey, we're coming over without really like saying, you know, can we stay at your house? It's just kind of implicit, which is great, kind of a family thing, but they're staying for five days and they t basically showed up at their door. And so like that mindset is not there culturally in a number of different factors. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the economic freedom principles that we have that it can really affect your culture, personal responsibility, accountability, transparency, you know, you could go down the 
list of a number of things that we probably take for granted in the United States all the time. Yeah, well, it doesn't make sense to to learn how to, you know, be patient and wait for things if being patient doesn't pay off. And if you don't have economic freedom, being patient just doesn't pay off. Right. And so it's not like, you know, people around the world are just different than we are. It's that like they exist in a different environment than we do, and they're doing the best they can in that environment, not our environment. No. So that's one big reason. The second big reason is Jim properly, you know, separates out that you also need to be able to exchange your property. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about that is that you have some sort of then incentive to take into account other people's feelings. And so my, my classic example is not everybody is a lover of modern art. And so some people think that modern art's trash and maybe, you know, if they couldn't sell it to someone else and they had a very valuable, maybe $1 million modern art painting, but they couldn't do anything with it. Maybe they'd use it as a scratch paper or they use it as like a drink coaster or maybe they use it for target practice in their backyard uh, just for the fun of getting rid of it. Right. But if, if you can exchange that piece of property, if you have that economic freedom to do that, then the art people who would consider it a travesty if you destroyed that piece of artwork are going to be willing to buy it from you. And so you have to take into account other people's values when you have the ability to exchange with other yeah, people. There's an opportunity cost to using it for target practice. It's like, oh, well, I could have at least got $20 out of that. And $20 allows me to go out to eat uh, at the fast food place, even with my wife, uh, if, we, if we wanted to. So they're having that ability to exchange is absolutely huge. So. Yeah. And so the, the East Asian tigers now make sense, right? Because if you have, you know, the incentive to grow investments and the incentive to engage in mutually beneficial exchanges, then you're going to grow. And if you don't have that incentive, well, then of course you won't. You're, you're going to kind of stay at the same level. And I think from our faith and economics standpoint, the relationships that we have with people, the one of the things that just amazes me as I, I think about the complexity of it is how we essentially have impersonal relationships. I might sell something on the local swap and talk, selling sofa or something, and it brings people together, this idea of exchange. It, it's somebody that maybe would have never shown up on my doorstep. Maybe I start talking to them about fishing, and before you know it, maybe they become a friend or something. And so the markets actually bring people together, and I think that's very intentional of having that freedom for exchange uh, of bringing people together. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's it's nice because it's like a it's social cooperation in the market, right? You're kind of both trying to reach the same end, which is get to the end of the exchange. Yeah. Whereas in some other markets or not markets, I guess in some other institutions, some of the social dimension of going to the polls might be that you're trying to beat someone else. Yeah. And not that competition is always a bad thing. Obviously, we like competitions in sports. But the point is that there are benefits to having this this social relationship where both people are trying to move in the same direction, which is a mutually beneficial exchange. Well, and the prosperity that it brings in terms of the win-win of I gain, you gain, and and ultimately leading to income beyond our wildest dreams. And and I don't mean billionaire status for us local people, but when, when people look at the United States from Mexico and Guatemala, I mean, why do you think they're trying to come here? Because we are rich beyond their wildest dreams. When we look at their average income maybe being $8,000 a year and ours being $40,000, $60,000 a year, we sometimes just don't know how good we have it. And when you can operate from an angle of, of surplus, uh, it makes life a little bit easier. Whereas when you're living in a system with less economic freedom and what you have is what you keep, it's a little bit more of a hoarder mentality. And it might be because of subsistence, right? So as you start to become more wealthy or higher incomes, you're just, your freedom to be able to do things changes and your mentality changes of, 
well, I could just sell this and do something else with it. And it's, it's a marvelous thing. Yeah. And I think that this, it's important to kind of contextualize exactly what you're saying there about exchange and moving from subsistence to exchange in terms of economic freedom, where a lot of people today talk about, you know, well, Sweden has policy X, Y, or Z, and they're very prosperous. But when we, when we're looking at the big picture, you know, comparing something like Guatemala and the United States, there's a stark contrast. Another stark contrast is comparing, you know, Western Europe today to Western Europe 300 years ago when the mercantilist system was in mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing that we see is, yeah, maybe Sweden has less economic freedom in some categories, but relative to 300 years ago, they're much more economically free than they were. And that's when most of the growth in, in Sweden's income as well as Western Europe's income happened is when there was the transition to economic freedom. So it's not like the higher number means higher income always in every category, you know, higher income is always going to get that result. But the point right. is that this is giving us a direction yeah. that we know that more economic freedom, less restrictions on trade is going to lead to more prosperity like this. Yeah. So the index gets printed every year. You can go to freetheworld.com and there's an interactive map that shows you freedom. There's 162 countries total. North Korea doesn't like to share their data. So there's a few countries missing, but 162 countries is pretty inclusive. All the most of the countries around the world. There's 42 different variables that are grouped into five areas. And what's nice about this index is it's just a number from zero to 10. And they just use simple averages as they compile the data. And we're not going to get into the complexities of that. But I do like the simplicity of ultimately boiling it down to a single number. And since they're using simple averages as they compile this, really the average Joe can look at this and kind of get it. You don't need to be trained in econometrics PhD or otherwise to really get what they're doing here. And it, it allows a person to single out some of these areas. So the five areas that we'll hit after break and dive in a little bit deeper, area number one, the size of government, number two, the legal system and protection of property rights, area three, access to sound money, area four, freedom to trade internationally, and finally, area five, the regulation of capital of labor and business. And I promise you folks that as boring as that might sound, we are going to keep it exciting. So we will be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contribution to students' experience, society's understanding for private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlaps of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordy Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Here at the Institute, we got fun student events going on uh, this term. Uh, we're doing a little road trip uh, to uh, Kansas and uh, Olathe, Kansas, and we've got education states. Some states spend less money and have better education outcomes. Why is that the case? Uh, we have a reading group on Bitcoin and have the economics of environmentalism coming up. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. So we're going to get into some of these areas. But before we do, I, I do have to state a few things of the summary statistics that they do with each year. And 
in the, they break the whole world into the most free and the least free. So the top 25%, according to the rankings, and then the least free is the bottom 25%. And then there's the third and second uh, quartile. So for income per person, adjusting for what we call purchasing power parity so that it's all fair with a basket of goods. In the free countries, you're looking at $40,000 for the top 25% on average and 5,500 or so for the least free countries. So again, that is 40,000 cans of Coke versus 5,500 cans of Coke in terms of their real living prosperity, material goods. That's what these numbers have been adjusted for. So economic growth tends to be strong, of course, in the free countries, and that ties in. But the ones that a little more near and dear to the Gorton Institute here is the poor. So they look at the income earned by the poorest 10%. In the most free countries, it's about 12,000 per person. And in the least free, it's 1100 $1,100. Now that's real food in your belly. So again, if we get a, go to the McDonald's dollar menu, that's 1,100 hamburgers for the poor person in the least free countries. And in the most free countries like the United States, and the United States is actually even higher than this, but uh, 12,000 hamburgers. So you start thinking about those sorts of impacts on real human welfare, and it, it's a big deal. Poverty rates, 31% in extreme poverty in least free countries, 31% of the population living on $1.90 a day. In the most free, 1%, 1.5% in extreme poverty. And bear in mind, there's other countries. In the United States, that number is basically zero. We don't have extreme poverty with between our social welfare system as well as just private charity. We have 0% starvation rate in the United States, for instance. I like to throw that out to my principal students that how many people in the United States do you think has died of starvation? And the number is zero. Nobody starves to death you know, on their own volition, you know, maybe, you know, short of being locked up or something weird like that, but actual, I can't afford food, starvation to death, that, that doesn't, doesn't happen in these countries. So that's pretty impressive. Life expectancy uh, ages up to about 80 in the most free countries, 64 in the least free countries. So that's a long period of time, right? We're talking 15 years of life, depending on most free versus least free. Political rights and civil liberties, so let's say gay rights, women's rights, the right to vote, all of that in most free countries is higher than in the least free countries. And so that looks like a good springboard here. Happiness was the last one. Uh, they do some reports on self-reported happiness. It turns out income can make you happier if we've got freedom. And actually, I think freedom is a, on other studies just as important of an ingredient as income, but it turns out more free countries have more income. So we have to try to disentangle Fun stuff like that is what economists do. So into these five areas, let's start with size of government. Peter, do you want to comment on that just so I stop talking for a second here? What's sure, yeah, absolutely. So the size of government, sort of the, the main thing that is trying to be measured when we look at the size of government for economic freedom is the amount of resources that the government is kind of able to hold and use. And so that's looked at at a bunch of different ways. There's a bunch of different ways we capture that measurement. One is just how much does government spend on consumption goods? You know, how much can government actually consume as well as investment? And so this is, you know, government spending. How much does your government spend as a whole? And so if your government spends 50% of your GDP, that's a huge portion of government income. That means government owns resources compared to private people. And that's exactly how they measure it, by the way, is what percent of government spending as a fraction of your overall 
gross domestic product, which is your na national income. So in the United States, we make about 20 trillion a year, if you, if you didn't know that. So we're pretty, doing pretty good, $20 trillion worth of income per year. And the government's spending around, on average, this has been a weird year with COVID, but around 4 trillion, 4 to 5 trillion. So that is the fraction of our overall income that ends up being spent by government. So that's one of the ways that you look at this measure. Countries with lower fraction score higher in individual economic freedom. And the other part of this is taxes. So they look at the top marginal tax rates. So what, are the, what is the highest rate? Uh, listeners, you might not know that in the good old United States of America, not terribly long ago, we were in the 70% range. So imagine as an American, you make an extra 10,000 bucks, government gets 7,500 or so of it, and you get to keep the rest. And so the, really the Reagan tax breaks was the one that brought some dramatic reductions down to around uh, we ultimately ended up in the 39%, uh, 39 and a half is the top marginal rate in the United States now. And as we've gone through Democrats and Republicans circling through, that really hasn't changed much. So I, I feel like that's stabilized. Of course, Bernie Sanders threw out back to 70%. I'm not so sure Paul Krugman said that couldn't be a possibility. Yeah, so. well, not to get too much in the minutia, but one of the nice things about the Reagan tax cuts, I mean, you would think that everyone would think this is nice, is actually that government revenue went up. This is what was called the Laffer curve at the time. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that when your tax marginal tax rate is that high, 70%, people spend so many resources to avoid taxes that they actually avoid more than they would if you just taxed them less. <laughs> so, so yeah, countries can lower their tax rate and have more money. We would think that's a good thing. But the, the nice thing about the Freedom Index is it captures that tax rate because yeah. that's important. Yeah. All right. And so the next section is legal system and property rights. You know, the, uh, the stuff that our country's going through with the Black Lives Matter type of stuff when, and police and defunding the police and all, all of these issues do play a role in this legal system and property rights. So through survey data, they collect for every country and they do ask survey questions similar to what I mentioned earlier that if you call the police, can you reasonably expect they're, they're going to come? Uh, if you're in front of a judge, are the, are the courts fair and impartial? And do you, do you believe that you can bring a case to a court if you've been wronged? Those are the types of questions that are asked around the world. And this is not these researchers doing these questions. I think this is another fabulous part about this particular index is that this is all external data of other agencies like the United Nations, like their interest groups on law and, and uh, jurisprudence. They are the ones doing these surveys. They publish this stuff annually. And what these folks do, Bob Lawson, Josh Hall, Jim Gortney, is they compile all this external data together. They actually don't gather any of the data. And then they do these simple averages in these five areas. And so I think that really stands apart from other methods that try to measure economic freedom. Yeah, I think one of the, the big umbrella terms that can be used to describe this category a lot is rule of law. That yes. is, people sort of know what the law is, they can reasonably expect what's going to happen if they break the law, and they, it's not like there's a bunch of laws that they don't know about. Obviously, we have some of that in our society. Sometimes, you know, the tax code's super long, and so that's probably a mark against us. And listeners, I, I never really got the concept of rule of law until I read something that said as opposed to rule by man. That's right. And so yeah. even, even though North Korea uh, does not report data, 
I, I would have to imagine that rule of man is a little more uh, yeah. more used in North Korea than yeah. Rule of and law. so historically, of course, the law of the land was whoever was in power, the king or the queen or um, the dictator, in different cases throughout throughout history. And so, you know, thank goodness for the most part. And unfortunately, this is eroding to some degree. But Obama gets in office, the law is basically the same. Trump gets into office, the law is basically the same. So we really, our constitution, the Bill of Rights, and as it's evolved over time, the idea of limited government is to continue to have rule of law that persists over the long haul. We talked about our long-term planning and how important that is, and that's one of them. We don't want the law to be flipped over on top of its head every time a new president comes into office, every four to eight years that when we're talking about businesses planning for the next 20 years or retirement planning, a young person in their 20-somethings or 30-somethings trying to think about their nest egg that they want to build by age 65, those are all real important to our uh, individual prosperity and the nation's prosperity. And so this concept of rule of law is really important and certainly one of the big reasons that other countries don't prosper. We mentioned Guatemala. I've done a little extra research on Guatemala when I when I visited there and presented this content, and that's one area that they really suffer in. There's there's corruption at different levels, and if you don't have that, it's pretty hard to get the engine started. So it turns out they are in the top 25% of the most free nations in the past. And I think they maintained it with this last rating. Is that right, Nate? Nate? Yeah, see yeah, you. they're in the top. 25%. Yeah. So but they, uh, they don't have that great outcomes. And so that was a puzzling question for me. Why are they most free, but they're not, having the, they're not looking like the United States in terms of outcomes. And it turns out uh, this area number two, legal system and property rights is really somewhat broken there. And it's uh, maybe one of the more important things. Although what, what I've learned over time is that that's why there's five areas is that they're very interrelated. If one breaks down, that can topple things yep. uh, pretty quickly. So I don't know any last, so reliability of police, there's, they, they kind of have listed here the different ones. So yeah, there's, a, there's a, f- a few other ones, you know, regulatory costs, but I think what you just said provides us a good transition. You know, I think of things toppling one by one. And one of the recent cases of that is Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, the toppling from kind of a rule of law country with sound money to, uh, you know, rule of man country that now has, well, we all know what happened to Venezuela's money. And that's our next category, sound money. Sound money. Yeah. So why don't you take it away with sound money? So sound money gets to kind of what we were talking about earlier with, you know, long-term investments and, you know, having a tomato in your backyard and things like that. Money is another thing that can either increase or decrease in value over time. And so one thing that government can do is that it it could increase the number of dollars that are out there and essentially keep the dollars for itself. And so this is like a hidden tax. But what that does is it causes your money to lose value. And we have listeners of all ages on here. And I just want to make sure everybody's clear. Your money's not backed by gold, folks. That's right. There's no gold standard. So on your bill somewhere on the back, it says, in God we trust, because that's all you got going for you. You know, we've been, again, pretty trustworthy with the Central Bank of the United States, but that is what this category is looking at. And so is the central bank independent of the fiscal side of the house? And, and, and so that's a, for developed countries, that's the way they run things. So that, again, Trump can't tell the central banker to print off more money because the election's coming up. So they do truly operate completely independently. They are appointed by the president as they get in. But after that, 
Trump is not uh, Jerome Powell's boss. Jerome Powell's the chair of the Federal Reserve uh, this term. So that's an important feature. And just got out of the Bitcoin club reading. And so kind of excited about the prospects of Bitcoin throughout, especially the developing world, because that's where this hyperinflation and problems have persisted, where developing countries the president does have control of the money supply. And so you look back to Zimbabwe with a can of Coke running about $50 trillion in the morning. And I'm not kidding, listeners, uh, that, that it's a true story, that it, the currency became worthless in about a year and a half, two-year time frame. It was one of the worst cases of, of hyperinflation that's been out there. And so, again, this all ties into individual freedom. I don't have an instrument called money to help make myself prosper. I might have to fall back on uh, trade and bartering. So I have chickens and you have pigs. Well, I'd just like to buy a pork chop today. Uh, how is that going to work, right? You have a whole pig and I have chickens and we want to do a deal, but it might be difficult to trade with each other because we don't have money to break that down into smaller units. Yeah. It, well, like we said at the beginning, economic freedom is great because it enables people to kind of learn information about each other and what other people value. And when you lose pieces of economic freedom, you lose the ability to engage in the process of learning information. And so losing money, for example, you lose the ability to figure out how much someone is willing to pay for something. Saying, I'm willing to pay two chickens for your pig doesn't tell you anybody how much you're willing to pay for a pork chop. And you can't, can't actually even make that trade. So you lose a big part of exchange when you lose sound money, right. as well as the incentive to save. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to bring this session to a close. We're going to run into a part two where we'll wrap up some more of these issues because there's a lot of stuff to get into. The final two categories are freedom to trade internationally and regulations. And I think there's a lot to be said there. So we'll uh, roll this into a part two. So thank you all for listening to the Gorton Institute's production here. We uh, pride in trying to bring good content material on faith and economics. Uh, we didn't bring a lot of Jesus this episode, so, but that's what the balancing act we, we run. So I think we snuck a little faith comments and maybe there'll be more here in part two. So if you like what you hear, be sure to give us a nice rating and it helps other people find us. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.